What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. You know, as we think about the volatility and we experience the volatility in the markets, one new area uh, of investing that wasn't uh, as developed back in the financial crisis is ETFs. To get a sense of how that sector of the market is performing, we're really fortunate to have Samara Cohen, head of iShares Global Markets at BlackRock, joining us on the phone. So, Samara, give us a sense of how the the world of ETF trading is behaving given these extraordinary market uh, uh, moves we've been seeing. Hi, thanks very much for having me. So let me give you two stats. In 2019, to your point, ETF trading has grown a lot over the last 10 years. And even in 2019, ETF trading was a significant portion of U.S. equity trading, averaging at about 27% of a U.S. equity volume on a daily basis. So what we have seen, and we've seen this in other high-velocity markets before, although this one is really extraordinary, is that ETF usage is really positively correlated with volatility. When the VIX spikes, ETF usage spikes, and also when liquidity goes down, ETF usage goes up. So what we've seen over the past two weeks is ETFs, remember that 27% average in 2019, really hovering at 38 to 40% of volume uh, of, of U.S. equity volumes on a daily basis. And by the way, this story is being repeated around the world with volumes being set in European ETFs as well. A lot of people, including Eric Balchunas of Bloomberg Intelligence, has been talking about how ETFs have actually provided a host of liquidity at a very volatile time. And when people are trying to discover the right levels, uh, I think that that is borne out with a lot of ETFs. There is a question, however, about the bond ETFs and some of the dislocations that we have seen, particularly uh, with the shares trading significantly below where the assets that underlie the ETFs are valued at. And I'm just wondering if you could speak to some of the dislocations and, and sort of uh, speak to some people who are saying this could s- just create a spiral, a downward spiral uh, leading to forced selling and, and further declines. Yeah, absolutely. But let me get to your first point, too, which is, you know, why are investors looking to ETFs in times like this? I think, you know, as we've been hearing in every market and listening to every news report, these are times without a lot of transparency and without a lot of certainty. And what ETFs offer investors is transparency in terms of what's in the fund and where you can transact it and certainty of market access. And both of those things are valued highly, and that's what we're seeing in the velocity of ETF trade. So to get to your answer, uh, to get to your question, let me give you a specific example that I think is instructive and indicative of what we've seen in ETFs, fixed income ETFs across several asset classes. And that's taking our um, high-yield ETF, LQD, which, as you noted, traded at an unusually large um, discount to its NAV on Thursday, March 12th. That discount was about 5%. It's since normalized a bit to about half of that to 2%. 
So on that day, LQD traded over 89,000 times on exchange. If I look at its top holdings, which are bonds like Verizon, CVS, GS, those bonds traded on average 30 times each, between 9 at the lowest and like 54 at the highest. So what you are seeing is that trading is occurring in, and, and therefore price discovery is occurring in LQD, much less so the underlying markets. And so therefore that 5%, and if you dig a little bit more, what you will see is that 5% um, uh, uh, lower price, much more closely tracked, the more frequently traded um, uh, uh, bonds that were in LQD's portfolio. So in these types of scenarios, what we say is LQD's price and that gap is transmitting a lot of real-time information about bond market conditions, which I know you've been reporting on, which are that bonds aren't trading. It is hard to find the other side of, you know, uh, some of these top holdings, let alone the portfolio of bonds in LQD, and therefore for immediate liquidity and price discovery, investors are turning to LQD. So in these scenarios, that um, that information tells you the price of liquidity in this, you know, really extraordinary and, and at this time dislocated bond market. Uh, Samra, just give us a sense of fund flows in and out of ETFs. You know, are there any notable moves that you're seeing in, in your various products? So, look, I think notably we are seeing outflows in fixed income. But to put that in context, the outflows are a fraction of that on-exchange trading, which, again, underscores the point as to um, conditions in the underlying bond market. So if we take HYG, which had a, a record volume week of about $40 billion, uh, two weeks ago, right after the oil headline news, um, in that week, HYG had outflows that were $400 million. So that was a 10-to-1 ratio of uh, volume trading in the secondary markets where no bonds were trading um, versus actual flows out of the bonds. So again, importantly, the risk transfer and the velocity that we're seeing in in um, ETFs is really happening much more on exchange than in the underlying bond market, which is why I would very much take the other side of that statement um, in terms of ETFs uh, um, uh, 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 causing any sort of um, spiral. I don't remember exactly what you said. In this market, ETFs are providing a release valve to exchange risks without tapping the underlying bond market. Samara, just uh, I want us to take a step back uh, to wrap this all up. You talk about the incredible volatility and, and the incredible volumes and the price discovery mechanism uh, that has become really the ETF's hallmark. And I'm wondering if you get a sense of who is behind a lot of this activity. I mean, does this really highlight how ETFs have become an institutional tool or are we seeing mom and pop investors turning to these in order to withdraw money or perhaps uh, Park money in, in cash like ETFs? ETFs are used broadly by lots of different types of investors. In this environment and this velocity of trade, ETFs are being used by banks, broker dealers as inventory management tools. Um, they're not being used uh, 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 in these volatile markets by, by individual investors, but they are a really important tool to bond market um, participants across the board. 
Samara Cohen, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Samara Cohen, head of iShares Global Markets at BlackRock. And it's really been important, Paul, to look at the ETF complex because of exactly what Samara was saying, which is the incredible volumes that we yep. have seen and the incredible uh, price action and, and some of the questions around bond ETFs. Samara kind of highlighting the other side of people who are arguing about a death spiral like Peter Shear, uh, I know, of Academy Securities saying, you know, honestly, this is just a a tool for price discovery and has served that function. And certainly we haven't necessarily seen, you know, the real sort of uh, dire scenarios come to pass as a lot of people uh, have postulated in the past. Let's bring in uh, Bart Van Ark. He's a chief economist at the conference board, uh, a regular guest with Lisa and myself. Bart, thanks so much for joining us. All right, let's try to reset a little bit here, Bart. Uh, we, we know uh, that this is uncharted territory. Give us your sense of what you think the economic impact will be from this virus for the remainder of 2020. Well, it's obviously daunting at the moment to put out any forecast because the situation is almost changing every moment. Uh, but, you know, today we actually released our leading economic index for February. This was before uh, this whole episode started to involve in the Western world. Um, and that was still uh, up uh, at that time. And actually that gives one little piece of evidence and that is that at least at a minimum we're entering this very difficult period in a relatively good shape. And that's particularly important when it comes to the labor market and when it comes to consumption. Simply the fact that unemployment was low, that household balance sheets were pretty strong, and therefore consumption strong helps to cushion the effects possibly. But obviously that index is old news now because we have to look forward. Uh, as you just mentioned, unemployment claims uh, are um, uh, up in a, in a very worrying way. Uh, that really concerns us a lot. Uh, that's the first thing to look at, whether the labor market is going to move. We had a hoped that companies would hold on to uh, their workers uh, for, for the time being. It might very well be that these unemployment claims are primarily small and medium enterprises, but if there's one thing necessary, it's for governments, uh, federal and state, as well as businesses, to think of any tool and instrument to keep people on the payroll, because that would really uh, turn south. Consumer confidence is the next thing that will fall if the labor market is going to weaken, um, and that would really put us into a, a, a very weak territory for the next quarter, next quarter or two. Probably. Bart, anecdotally, we are hearing about major airlines furloughing staff without pay. We're hearing about major uh, restaurant companies also cutting back staff to your point that you are wondering whether people would hold on to staff. And a lot of people were arguing ahead of this that people would want to hold on to their workers because they would think that it would be so much harder to hire them back afterwards. Are you changing that narrative? Do you think that that narrative is now incorrect, that there is sort of a pressure just to stay in business, cut all costs because revenues have gone to zero in a number of industries? Yeah, we're worried about that. Again, these unemployment claims, you really have to kind of unpack them a little bit to see where is this happening, which states is it happening because states have somewhat different policies when it comes to filing these uh, unemployment claims. Sometimes you have to go in person to, to, a, to, to an employment office to claim them. Sometimes you can do it online. So you've got to look at these kind of things. But uh, I, I think it's absolutely critical to see uh, where is this happening. And there's a real difference between furloughs and pay cuts versus letting people go because – 
you know, we're in the middle of this change towards a new normal. We're not in a new normal yet. We're, we're kind of in a sort of panic mode. And to actually let people go in that situation, and then maybe in, you know, a couple of weeks' time and things are beginning to normalize, won't be good, but at least they're beginning to normalize, and you suddenly see you let staff go that you may not be able to get easily back. So finding ways to keep people on your payroll, even if you have to pay a price or, or there's a cost, or even if the workers themselves have to forego some of the cuts, I think is a very different way than just letting people go. So holding on to your people, I think, is the key thing that we're looking at. So, Bart, I mean, I think at the early stages of this crisis, I'm thinking just several weeks ago, uh, many economists were suggesting a V-shaped uh, economic cycle here where we're going to have a sharp downturn in the second quarter, uh, uh, but then pick right back up in the third and the fourth quarter. Um, do you have any sense or any confidence in that, or, or is it just too fluid right now? Yeah, that's a really important point. I mean, instead of just looking at the numbers, whether the contraction is going to be 2% or 5% or 10%, it's much more important to look at that, that shape of the curve. So, yeah, there are quite a few forecasts out there that show a very deep contraction happening now, but then expect a quick rebound uh, 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 later on. That's a V-shaped curve. I think that one really is unlikely for, for a whole bunch of reasons. One of them, very importantly, is that uh, the first hit is really on a lot of the services sectors. So, you know, if you don't take your meal now, you're not going to take two meals next month, if you see what I mean. And that's true for many of these issues. So I think V-shaped is unlikely. Uh, the U-shape, as we call it, which means that, you know, we're spreading this out. This is going to be spread out over time, to me, seems more likely. Let's assume that the attempt to flatten the curve of new cases to avoid the peak, but flatten the curve of new cases over, over two quarters or perhaps even more, that's a good thing uh, because it really reduces the, the health challenges that we're having. But from an economic point of view, we're also spreading the pain over time. That's why I think, uh, you know, we might at, at a minimum see two quarters of contraction. Maybe not, may not be as deep as some people think, but it will be with us for quite a while. My biggest worry is what we call an L-shape. And an L-shape is that, you know, this goes on for a much longer time. You know, maybe it gets a little bit less over the summer, who knows, but then we're back into this by the end of the year. And then it could actually permanently lower the level of economic activity in what was already a fairly slow economy to begin with. And that would, of course, be a real new normal that could be with us for quite a while. Very hard to say, but I think for us economists to really think that through and help businesses to understand what that means for the long-term planning, we had to come to word believe that's really important now. We're speaking with Bart Van Ark, Chief Economist at the Conference Board. Uh, and, and, and Bart, I want to pick up on what you said, the idea of an L-shaped non-recovery, that this could just permanently lower the overall growth rate for, I mean, permanent, whatever that means, I guess, going forward. I, I'm curious what that means in terms of, are you forecasting an increasing likelihood of a sort of depression-like scenario, or is this just, you know, grinding ahead at an even slower pace than we already were? Look, it's tempting at this point in time to think about worst-case scenarios, and, and of course, companies have to think about this now. You got you have to be in this scenario mode now and and plan for those. So, yeah, a worst-case scenario like that, that this could be with us for three years and could permanently depress the economy, whether it's, whether it's continuous contraction or really slow growth, I don't know. I think that is tempting to do, and I think we have to do some of this. But I think it's much more likely that once after two or three weeks we're going to set in this sort of new normal, uh, that we have to begin to think, how are we going to do business? 
in the in in the in the next few months in this kind of environment. You know, of manufacturing firms who are now working A and B shifts with fewer people on the shop floor at one point in time. How are you going to do that? And how they, can you keep your capacity up? Um, services firms where everybody is working remote. Uh, those are the real questions that businesses have to work themselves through. How can we do business in this kind of new environment? And yes, at the background, there are these worst case scenarios. We're not yet at the point to begin to frame those out. But obviously, you know, in the medium term, that's what we will need to do. Bart Van Art, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, your perspective. Bart Van Art, Chief Economist at the Conference Board. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's get a sense of what's going on in Washington, D.C. in terms of coronavirus fiscal stimulus coming out of the Capitol. Uh, Stephen Dennis, Bloomberg Senate reporter, joins us. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Give us the latest on kind of where we are with the various pieces of legislation uh, within Congress and the administration. Yeah, so Senate Republicans this morning are compiling a very large stimulus package. We're expecting it to be well over a trillion dollars. But we don't yet have the exact details, you know, they had three task forces putting it together over the past uh, day and a half. They hope to get something to uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell this morning so he can compile it and then walk across the hallway and start negotiating with Chuck Schumer, who has his own nearly trillion-dollar package um, with very different ideas. Um, And then you've got uh, House Democrats, you know, various House Democrats are proposing various plans of their own, whether it be Ilhan Omar, who wants uh, similar big checks to what uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin's talked about. Maxine Waters wants even bigger checks. Um, A lot of other Democrats want things that are more traditional aid, things like food stamps and unemployment insurance. But two ideas that have gotten traction in both parties is this idea of sending everybody a check, maybe with some means testing, um, trying to figure out what the level is, whether it's one thousand or two thousand dollars or more, and then the second thing that has pretty widespread support is a lot of support for small businesses. A, a plan by Susan Collins and Marco Rubio would send three hundred billion dollars covering all of their expenses uh, until this crisis is over, and. Uh, 
that, that would initially be a loan, but if they don't lay people off, it becomes a grant. So, so that's a huge support for small businesses. Stephen, that's exactly where I wanted to go because people say that the helicopter money, sending $1,000 to every American is great and all, but it's going to take a couple of weeks and it's not going to cover the mortgage payment in a lot of places, plus all the food expenses, et cetera, for people who are out of work. People have been pointing very much to the small business kind of grants or loans as a way to just keep people from getting fired. And I'm wondering how quickly, do we have a sense of how quickly that could be up and running? Yeah, I think that one of the things that they're looking to do is using existing authorities through the Small Business Administration that would then tap into banks. So you'd end up having, you know, your normal lenders who are already around would have these federally guaranteed loans that they could make. And then they'd sort it out later as far as uh, the forgiveness process of that loan, where basically the federal government is ultimately paying these loans off. Um, as far as how fast it could get up and running, they are hoping to get this up and running in weeks. But, you know, in the meantime, uh, as we know, as we've gotten these anecdotal reports from a lot of these states, the unemployment claims are soaring in, in just the last few days. A lot of senators saying that they're getting reports from their states that, you know, in, in like the last two or three days, they're getting an entire month's worth of, of layoffs. And if they don't act quickly and assure those businesses that they're going to get paid, it's going to get much worse. So they, they want to have a bill done potentially out of the Senate this weekend uh, to assure businesses so they don't actually fire people. Um, but, you know, this thing still has to go through the House. You still have a lot of go- negotiations to do. It's going to take a while to get things up and running. So, you know, this is warp speed, as, as Mitch McConnell has said, for the Senate. But warp speed is still, you know, way behind this virus, which is getting worse and worse every day. You're seeing uh, the cases in Maryland, for example, are up 83 percent in two days. Um, And there's now 107 cases in Maryland. People are worried about shortages at hospitals. Another thing that the Democrats are talking about, and you're seeing some talk about this from the administration as well, is forbearance on all, all sorts of loans, whether it be mortgages, uh, so maybe you extend those mortgages. Uh, you don't have to pay them up front. You can, you know, sort of skip a month, that kind of thing. Same thing with auto loans and other kinds of loans so that people aren't declaring bankruptcy in the next few months. So, Steve, there's also been, aside from getting uh, money to consumers as quickly as possible, there's also a lot of industry groups are saying we need help from the federal government. Is Congress going to take up those industry-specific bailout issues separately and at a later date. What's the feeling there? I think there's, there's, uh, uh, this is evolving by the hour, and I think <laughs> that there's more and more of a sense that they can't go home without dealing with bigger businesses. Um, you've got the airlines in particular and other industries. Uh, you know, Initially, we're talking about loans. Now we're talking about maybe having some equity stakes in companies if they need aid. You know, we saw that with, with TARP. We saw that with the, the, some of the auto bailouts. You know, this is looking more and more like uh, the, the 2008 financial crisis and all the stops are being pulled out. Yeah. You know, if you're a company and you don't have a big cash cushion, uh, you know, there's going to be a need for some process for keeping them afloat.
Steve Dennis, uh, we are speaking with Bloomberg Senate reporter, and I'd love to get your perspective on exactly that, this sort of uncomfortable feeling that certain Republicans probably have, considering the fact that there was some high criticism of the bailouts that were unrolled and used to rescue the auto companies, the banks back in 2008. And I'm wondering, we are hearing, uh, we are hearing leaders of the Republican Party telling everyone, just hold your nose and vote for it, because otherwise, we're going to have a serious problem on our hands with respect to the economy. Can we talk a little bit about the idea of owning equity in some of these companies? What are some of the other proposals? How close are they to solidifying some sort of parameters for bailouts of the airlines, of the casinos, of the cruise liners, and other industries that might be affected? I think when you start getting to casinos and cruise lines, et cetera, it's going to be very hard for industries like that to get bipartisan support. There may be some general kinds of supports in here that give the administration some flexibility, but that that is when it becomes uh, it becomes a very politically dicey for members of both parties. Uh, you know, the 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 Wall Street bailout was extremely unpopular. A lot of the senators and House members remember remember going through that, uh, but on the other hand, they you know I, I think a lot of the senators and House members who voted for that saw it as absolutely essential, even though it was unpopular. So, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is a big, big question. Uh, if you have auto companies and all these other uh, companies out there shuttering their factories because the government is telling them they have to, in many cases, uh, or, or shops or, or shopping malls, et cetera, the government is telling businesses to, to shut their doors or to send people home. Uh, this is a different situation than 2008 and 2009. I've heard Republican senators say, look, this isn't really a moral hazard question. Um, back then, the, one of the big concerns was we're bailing out the people who caused the crisis. Um, this time, we're in a situation where people are being ordered by the governments or the state local governments, in many cases, to not open their doors and there should be some compensation for that from the government because you're doing that to benefit all of society. So this is going to be really complicated questions. And so they're balancing two big issues. One is to move as fast as possible. You know, senators do not want to be in town. House members don't want to be in town. We already have some House members who are infected. Um, secondly, they might be able to clean this up later. You know, uh, everybody's worrying, worrying about means testing and everything else. You can solve that later. And, and, and it's not like, you know, this is the only thing that's ever going to be done on this crisis. There's, there's going to be more legislation coming after this. So, Steve, you know, just as recently as a couple of days ago, uh, Secretary Treasury uh, of the Treasury Mnuchin um, was saying that he intended to get cash into hands of consumers within a couple of weeks. That is not possible. Is that right? I think it's, you know, uh, in, a, in a crisis like this, it's not clear what's possible and what isn't. It took many weeks um, in 2008 to get the checks in the hands of people. Um, in 2008, people forget it, but they got $600 checks uh, as the fiscal crisis was just getting underway. Uh, Pelosi and George Bush at the time cut a deal. Um, that was about $150 billion, if I remember correctly. It took many weeks for those checks to go out. I think that the 
uh, intensity of this crisis, the, the swiftness of the shock, and the fact that it's so sweeping across the country um, means all the stops are going to be pulled out to send those checks out as fast as possible. And, if, and I think that's one of the things that we're hearing behind the scenes is, you know, a lot of people have various ideas on exactly how you should craft this thing. How much money should, for a child? Should we have less for people over $100,000 in income? All these things that people have their ideas on, but the the overwhelming sense seems to be get this out yeah. fast, and 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 you can solve that problem later. We are uh, awaiting members of the Coronavirus Task Force to hold a press briefing in Washington, D.C. in the James S. Brady Room. And uh, we have been speaking with Stephen Dennis, Bloomberg Center reporter. Lisa, let's talk a little bit, um, you know, about the Treasury markets. There's been a lot of concern about liquidity in the market. What are you seeing over the last couple of days? Yeah, well, there's that. And then there's also the question about the dollar, but certainly a lot of pretty wild moves. Ed Al-Husseini, I'm sure, has been tracking it all, maybe perhaps getting a little nauseated, but uh, watching it nonetheless. Senior interest rate and currency analyst for Columbia Threadneedle Investments. And Ed, I'd love to get your perspective on some of the volatility that we have seen recently in the Treasury market. I I know that Ira Jersey, uh, chief U.S. interest rate strategist here in uh, at Bloomberg Intelligence, has called it dysfunctional, uh, or, or also just the dollar, this absolutely insurmountable climb of the dollar. What's going on? Yeah. Hi. Well, thanks for having me on. And, you know, very quickly, I think the the, the root cause of what we're seeing uh, is is a rush to cash, and whether that's happening in the Treasury market space. Uh, or in the dollar funding space, that that uh, lack of confidence in what's going on is is really precipitated a lack uh, uh, of liquidity. Now, liquidity uh, problems are most acute in the longer end of the Treasury curve and in credit markets. Uh, the Fed has started to roll out facilities to address some of this, uh, but so far I have to say. Um, the targeted facilities, and, and there's a whole slew of them that have come online in the course of the past week, uh, they've not had, um, I, I think, a full impact, and, and definitely not in the, in the dollar funding space yet. So, Ed, is there anything left in the Fed's toolbox to kind of aid the liquidity in the market? I think so. And, and the way I think about the Fed's response is, is really there's been three channels. There's been the traditional monetary policy where we took Fed funds down to zero, there's been a, a replay of the 2008 playbook in the facilities, whether it's quantitative easing or some of the liquidity facilities and credit, direct credit facilities that have come online. And the third chapter uh, is perhaps the most interesting, and that's the innovation and the new facilities that they're developing to address the current issues. And on that front, intervening directly in credit markets, potentially including uh, corporate credit in its quantitative easing program, um, could be an interesting step using yield curve control to set caps on yields at longer points in the curve uh, could be the next step. So I think the toolkit continues to grow. Uh, I think the room to experiment is, is significant, and I think the need for them to act is, is, is growing daily. I want to pick up, Ed, on that point where basically the the idea that the Federal Reserve could pull an ECB or BOJ type move and start buying corporate debt. This is something that was put out there by former Federal Reserve chairs, 
Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen in a recent op-ed in the Financial Times where they were saying it is time for the Federal Reserve to use this tool. Based on what we've seen in Europe, in the Bank of Japan, is it really effective? Um, I want to say in in Europe it's been very effective in in terms of compressing uh, credit premiums. Now, the structure of the, the, the financing system is a little bit different. The European corporates disproportionately depend on bank lending. Uh, so the corporate bond market is, is less significant than it is uh, for us here in the U.S. Uh, but, but I think the, the, the lesson of the last several years is that that sort of intervention is quite effective. And in the current situation where the core of the issue that we're facing is illiquidity in corporate bond markets, this would get to it very directly. You don't have to rely on sort of portfolio rebalancing when you purchase treasuries. Uh, you can go directly to the heart of the problem if you're the Fed and use your balance sheet that way. You know, this is an incredibly controversial measure in Europe because people say that it's distorted uh, valuations to such a degree that there has been no price discovery. And that's one reason why we're getting such violent swings now is because suddenly people have to price in credit risk. And I'm wondering... Is what we are seeing in the corporate debt markets right now the pricing in of true credit risk, or is it liquidity risk in terms of people just having to sell and nobody being on the other side? Um, it's a little bit of both. You know, at the moment, I would put more weight on uh, the liquidity issues. Uh, you know, particularly in the course of the last several weeks, there's definitely greater credit risk that's being priced in. Um, but the liquidity issues have, have been acute. And so from the Fed's perspective, you want to address both. You want to make the market more liquid, um, and you want to compress some of the risk premium out of the market. Uh, whether that's a distortion, um, I don't know. Uh, but it's, I think it's part of the Fed's policy mandate to compress risk premiums in a situation where you know, we could potentially be going into a recession. Uh, so I think I think that's the right step. So, Ed, how much as we think about some of the liquidity issues in the market across asset classes, how much is due to the fact that Wall Street just isn't what it used to be in terms of trading desks and capital deployed and number of traders and things like that? How much of that is contributing to it? Yeah, look, I mean, um, at a very high level, the the balance sheet that Wall Street provides to to intermediate trading is is much smaller. Uh, versus where it was uh, pre the financial crisis, uh, in part due to regulatory changes, um, and so you know we're you know we're paying a price for that right now, uh, and that's one of the reasons why the Fed's balance sheet is, is starting to look attractive. Uh, there just aren't a lot of actors out there. There aren't a lot of marginal buyers out there um, at the moment to intermediate between market players, and and the Fed could play that role. Uh, but you're right, Wall Street is definitely uh, smaller and less capable of handling dislocations like this. Ed, I'm wondering about the dollar. A lot of people have said it's a sell everything and get to the dollar type market. And I'm wondering what you think could actually stem the strength of the dollar, could actually bring it back down to earth and perhaps support some of the other currencies around the world. Yeah, well, you know, you know ultimately, it's a, it's a crisis of confidence. Um, and so measures, whether they're you know, public health sector issues or uh, the scale and scope of the fiscal response that we're seeing um, have to restore confidence. I think that's that's essentially the root issue here. When it comes to the dollar funding market, obviously the Fed took uh, another step in that direction by providing uh, currency swap lines to central banks, expanding the number of banks they deal with, 
to include some of the major emerging market central banks um, uh, like Mexico and Brazil. Uh, I think that's a significant step in, in the right direction. We have to remember that the, the folks who use these swap lines ultimately are commercial banks. Uh, they are the, the, the primary user. And if banks uh, feel that there's stigma attached to, to drawing down these lines, or if banks draw down these lines but then don't lend that uh, dollar supply out to corporates, uh, it's not going to work. And that, that is fundamentally a, a confidence issue, which is why you're seeing the dollar bid so aggressively right now. Hey, Ed, thank you so much for joining us. We always appreciate uh, your thoughts and commentary. Ed Al-Husseini, Senior Interest Rates and Currency Analyst for Columbia Thread Needle Investments, uh, giving us his thoughts uh, on the Treasury market, Lisa, and on uh, currencies and you know the DXY index 101.7 here. Uh, it had hit 102.4 earlier today, just showing that extraordinary strength uh, in, in the dollar, just uh, amazing across the board relative to other currencies. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.